Amen. Why don't we pray one more time before we get started? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the powerful means of grace as we partake of the Lord's Supper, as we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. And Lord, as we encourage one another in spirit-filled fellowship, Lord, may our hearts be inclined to your word. Lord, help us to rightly apply your word to our lives down to the very practical matters of life. Parenting being right at the very center of it. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and help us, Lord, to conform our lives to your holy word and to your law and to your standards and to your holiness. We pray, God, that you would cause our homes and our families and our children and our wives and our husbands and our domestic duties to be for your glory, that we would take great delight in them, that we would not desire to shrink away from them, that we wouldn't want to shirk or set aside these duties that you've given us, that we would not grow apathetic or cold, that we would not become indifferent or lukewarm when it comes to our lives in our homes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just continuing on with this subject of God and you, uh, today the subject is parenting, and it will be so uh, for the next couple of Sundays. And what a glorious opportunity I have uh, to look at this subject. I've preached on parenting before, but only as it kind of arises in the text here and there. But I haven't really been able to spend time concentrated specifically on this the total subject of what it means to be a godly father or mother and what it means to be a godly child, a godly uh, a child who is uh, regenerate, but also what it means to be an obedient child, whether you're regenerate or not. Uh, just a remarkable, remarkable uh, dynamic that we find here in Scripture, and we're going to get to even those kind of distinctions. But uh, this section here is... You know, really amazing because it just kind of flows right out of Paul's context in the book of Ephesians, and we shouldn't be surprised. I mean, he just got done dealing with the subject of marriage, and so logically, what comes after marriage is children. And so um, that is sort of the natural progression of life, isn't it? First you get married, and then you have kids, and then the family starts, and then things start, and then things get crazy, things get <laughs> a little bit wild, and then you need instruction very quickly. So that's, you know, praise God that, that the Apostle Paul uh, moved into this subject so that we would know how to take all of the riches of the gospel and apply them to this subject of parenting. Because if you think about it, just like marriage is a gospel issue, and nobody would debate that. I mean, if you just go back to the last verse there in chapter 5, he ends it with talking about that he has been talking about a great mystery. And, and uh, he in verse 32, he says that this is in reference to Christ and the church. And so we wouldn't hesitate to identify that marriage is a gospel issue. And uh, I would just extend that to say, well, so is parenting. And so is everything else that he talks about uh, in this section of the practical uh, part of the letter. Remember, the first three chapters of Ephesians is the is the uh, doctrinal part, or really more of the um, 
the indicative part of the letter. This is telling us, you know, who, who we are in Christ, the fact that we have been chosen in Christ, we've been predestined in Christ, we have been put into union with Christ, who we, who we are in our spiritual union with Christ. And then, beginning in chapter 4, he begins to elucidate everything that should follow from that. If you truly are in Christ, then what follows, according to chapter 4, is that you belong to a church. If you really are in Christ, then what follows is that you submit to the authority of the local church. And if you really are in Christ, then guess what? It says here, you will no longer be a child tossed to and fro, but you will be mature. So you should be growing in Christ. If you really are in Christ, then guess what? Then you ought to walk in purity as Christ calls us to, even as Paul goes on to talk about that. Uh, about that in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 he gets into if you really are in Christ well that should affect even the way you talk uh, even the way you conduct yourself Uh, so it affects your character your virtue your conduct everything if you really are in Christ well then according to the apostle then you should be filled with the spirit of Christ and you should also be filled with the Spirit of Christ in your marriage, in your home, in your family life, in your parenting. And then as he goes on later to talk about, even at your job, before your master or your employer, whatever it may be. If you really are in Christ, you should expect spiritual warfare. Chapter 6, verse 10 and following. So you get the point. Parenting is right smack dab in the middle of all of that. It shows really how important it is and how you know, um, how crucial it is for us to apply the gospel to our lives. And really, that is really the first point, is that parenting is a gospel issue. Uh, It is not anything less than that. Um, We should view parenting as a ministry. We should view parenting as, 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 as really part of the Christian life. It's not something that is just kind of tacked on at the end when all the real important stuff is done. And then we get around to our kids, and then we get around to really knowing how to be a good mother or a good father. No, absolutely not. In fact, Richard Baxter talks about just how important and how crucial the family is. Uh, Baxter says, a holy family is a place of comfort. It is a church of God. I really like that. He says, oh, that God would stir up the hearts of his people to make their families as little churches, that it might not be in the power of rulers or pastors that are bad to extinguish religion or banish godliness from the land. What is he talking about? What he's saying is that the influence in society that religion should be kept up in the world should not be relegated to the pastor or to the government. You know, whether the, the government becomes tyrannical or not, or whether you have freedom or the lack thereof. No, what really keeps religion going in the world is a godly home. And especially if you look at your home like a little church, that'll really um, liven things up in the home, right? It just means that you're either going to have a high view of your home or a low view. You're either going to see parenting as that institution that Christ instituted in the church or in the family life or that God instituted uh, or or not, or you will see it as trivial. But the reality is, is that it is absolutely indispensable that we have a high and holy view of the home. It's remarkable. Thirty years ago, John MacArthur appointed 
pointed out to the uh, the real problem that is going on with families. And that was back in, I, I looked it up, this is back in 1986. You remember what was going on in the world in 1986? Well, let me tell you, technology and fashion was, you know, something we'd probably laugh at today. Imagine a cell phone in 1986. Big old hunking piece of metal, right? Imagine fashion back in 1986. Some of you have pictures you'd like to burn. That was decades ago. But listen to what he says, because in the 21st century, his words are just as relevant for today as they were back then. And of course, if you want to talk about Richard Baxter, you're going back several centuries. But MacArthur pointed out that the real problem with homes today are, is spiritual, of course. He says, from the time of the fall, the family has been plagued with problems of every sort and weakened and undermined and threatened to destroy it. The first cause of those problems, as of every human problem, is the sinful nature with which every person is born. The cause of the fall is built, excuse me, he says, yeah, he says, the curse of the fall, rather, is built into the family. It is the curse that causes men uh, to be chauvinistic, women to usurp their, the place of men, and children to be disobedient to their parents, and parents to be abusive to their children. Only where Christ is in control as Savior and Lord can a family live up to the standards and fulfill the ministry that God commands. Now, I would only, I would only add to that that none of us will fully live up to the standards that God commands. I mean, let's face it. We will all blow it. Um, I think some of the best advice my wife got uh, as, a, as a, a new mother, somebody told her was that you're going to feel like a failure all the time. You're going to feel like you just weren't loving enough or you didn't care enough or you didn't provide for your child enough or you didn't discipline right or something. But some way you will be felt, you will be made to feel like a failure. And that's right, because the reality is, is we will fail, but that's where the gospel comes in. This is where the gospel is meant to encourage us uh, in what we are called to do. See, we need to view our children for what they really are. That's really what I hope uh, comes across. As I was preparing for this, I was just reminded over and over again that, you know, far too much we underestimate our children. And I, I want to come back to that. But the reality is, is that we need to see them for what they are. They are in little lives that have been entrusted to us by God. Thomas Watson said this. He says, a godly Christian parent should endeavor that their children, be, be, uh, uh, that their children may be more God's children than your children." That you see them that way. That you see them as they are God's property, God's creation. They belong to Him even before they belong to you. After all, He is sovereign over all things. Everything is His. So they need to learn to please Him, God. They need to learn to repent towards Him, God. They need to learn to obey His commands even above yours. See... This is where the hyper-grace movement is really useless at this point. Um, sorry to put it so frankly. But the hyper-grace movement w- w- would have slogans like this, that what your child needs is grace, not law. Uh, they need you to uh, just be merciful to them and to show them how 
fabulous and marvelous the grace of God is, and that hopefully that will be the incentive that will get your children to be, you know, behave better. Um, but the problem is, as a matter of fact, I was listening to a, a message that uh, my wife sent me on this, and uh, one of the teachers said, don't tell your children to obey because it's right. They said, don't tell your children to obey because it pleases God. I was like, well, then what do I got left? <laughs> I mean, do they even, have they read Colossians chapter 3? <laughs> you know what I mean? Where Paul says, it is right in the sight of God for children to obey their parents. I mean, I don't know what else to say. And even in this, uh, in this uh, uh, chapter in Ephesians, it's there. But no, the reality is, is that from a biblical worldview, children have always been taught by their parents to obey and to fear God. Uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 6. I mean, you want to go back in time. You want to go back into our godly heritage. I mean, it really goes back to uh, p- places like Deuteronomy chapter 6, which this classic Shema of Israel, you know this passage, Deuteronomy 6, 4. says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. These words, which I'm commanding you today, will be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk to them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You see what's going on there is that the children of Israel were instructed to instruct their children from sunup to sundown that they live in God's world. Every aspect of life should speak of God to your children. Let me make an additional observation. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, I want to point out the obvious. And maybe you overlooked it. I did, and and suddenly it struck me. Do you see there that the imperative is directly leveled to the child? He doesn't say, parents, tell your children to obey you. That's not what he says. He says, the vocative Greek is, children, obey your parents. In other words, they are the recipients of the direct address. In other words, what I'm saying is that Paul addresses the kids in the church directly. I like that because I thought, man, I started, ideas started coming to mind. It's like, oh, this is getting me going. Who do I start with first? You know? Kids are like, no, (laughs) don't let Pastor Emilio talk to me. (laughs) But that was an incentive because I have found myself repeatedly from the pulpit talking straight to the children. I've I've done that repeatedly, but I thought, but this reminded me, I need to do more of that. I need to speak directly to the children in the congregation and not shy away from that for fear that a parent is going to get, you know, offended or something. No, if you, really, if you really think about the context of Ephesians, if you really think about just the entire idea of what's going on here, this is a letter that is being read in a congregation somewhere in Ephesus, probably in a little tiny house church or something like that, and the letter is being passed around from church to church and little churches, and people are sitting there listening, and guess who's among them? Children! And they're sitting there listening to some pastor sit there and read Paul's letter. And then he gets to this section in the letter. And what the kids hear is this. Hey, kids, children of all ages, if you can understand it, 
If you can, if you can uh, interpret the words, children, obey your parents, then, you know, they tuned in at this point. And so I'm telling all the children in here to tune in at this point, to listen to the preacher as much as you can, because these directives are for you. Now, what that got me thinking about above everything, as I mentioned earlier, is that we have grossly misunderestimated our children. I think this is a systemic problem in Christianity, that children are just too young to be exposed to too much truth. That I think that children are underestimated theologically. I think they're underestimated spiritually. I think they're underestimated in terms of their maturity level, what they can, what they can handle. I have a question for you. Parents, please raise your hands. Are you going to give, are you going to allow your children to read the Bible? Yes, thank you. I hope so. Well, do you know what they're about to read in this book? I've had parents come up to me and tell me, um, excuse me, pastor, uh, this has happened to me several times. Are you going to be talking about sexual immorality next week? Because I kind of see it's coming up in the text. Let me know so that I can take my child out of the church or out of the service for that, for that sermon because I don't really want them to hear a bunch of that stuff. I don't think they're ready for it yet. My answer to that is, well, are you going to give the Bible to your child? Because if they get this... They're going to read about all of the immorality that is condemned in the Bible. So I would rather educate my children what is immoral and what is morally acceptable from Scripture than to allow the culture to do it, because they're going to get it from somewhere. You see, I think we've grossly underestimated our children. This was not, and the reason I started with Richard Baxter, because, of course, I went back to the Puritan times, and I've been reading Edwards, and I've been reading Gerstner on different Puritans, and I was reminded that, we live in a very different world, brothers and sisters. We really do. Uh, if you and I would have been part of the English Puritan era or even the American Puritans early on, let's say, in uh, Jonathan Edwards' time, it was very, very common for children below the age of 10 years old to know Greek and Hebrew. Very common. It wouldn't be like, oh, wow. We would, like, call Guinness Book of Records or something, Right? The Puritan family would be like, oh, really? Well, what declension are they on? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's it. It wouldn't be like some huge epiphany or something. No, 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 no. It's not a miracle. It was common. And now think about who taught. Let's take Jonathan Edwards just for an example. Eight years old, Jonathan Edwards already knows Greek. And I think by 10, he knows Greek and Hebrew. And at 13 years old, Jonathan Edwards graduates as a valedictorian of Yale. And he gives a speech in Latin. And that's why he became the greatest theologian that America ever produced. Now, of course, we're not to grade ourselves by Edwards. I mean, I'll step down right now. But what I'm saying is that who taught him that at that age? Where did he learn it, right? Who insisted that he learn all of that? I tell you what, it, it really humbles us as parents to think, as we look at our children, have we grossly underestimated what they are capable of doing? I would argue yes, emphatically, yes, we have. If you look at Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter 34, one of the practices of the Puritans is they would press the children with the advantage of walking with God 
as early as possible in age. This was, a, this was a leverage point that parents would use against their children to say, look, you better be thinking about spiritual things. You better be thinking about your soul. Every year that goes by, and if you're not walking with God, you are wasting precious, precious time. You're wasting precious years of your life. Um, one of the pillar texts would be, Second Chronicles chapter 34, you know, the example of Josiah. Let me read it to you. It's absolutely profound. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. How'd you like that responsibility? Eight years old, you're king. You're the, you're the head of the kingdom. And he reigned 31 years. He did right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in the ways of his father David. And he did not turn aside to the right and to the left. See, because David, even though despite his sin, David still persisted in the faith, and he ultimately did what was right in God's eyes. For in the eighth year of his reign, so that's when Josiah turned 16 years old, it says when he was still a youth, he began to seek God, the God of his father David. And in the twelfth year, when he was 20 years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. The high places were the idolatrous altars that Israel set up at different forbidden outposts. They didn't didn't worship God in Jerusalem like they were supposed to. They went out to Bethel and other places and made these temporary little sanctuaries that God never sanctioned. And and, and, And eventually those outposts, those churches out there that weren't even supposed to be out there, they became so compromised, eventually, in the course of time, they became idolatrous. And so what did Josiah do? He says he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the pagan Canaanite gods, the carved images and the molten images. He tore all the idols down. I love the progression here, don't you? Eight years old, 16 years old, 20 years old. Sometimes it works like that for me. I see a child, they're maybe eight, nine, ten years old, right? I check in with them. I see how they're doing. I see how they're living. I see what kind of child they are. And then sometimes, because life just goes on, I don't see that child again. I really feel like I have a meaningful conversation with that child for a few years. And boom, here they are. They're 14, 15, 16 years old now. And see, oh, now let's see where you're at now. You know, let's see where your maturity level is at now. And then maybe I don't see you again for another few years. And now you're 20 years old. You're moved out of your house. You're going to college. Or maybe you even got married young, (laughs) 20 years old, 21, and now we really kind of see who you became. See, I think that, that, that Josiah, because at 20 years old, we see who he became. He became a righteous king who had the authority to go out and destroy idolatry in the nation. I think that's all owing to his upbringing. Had he not had a godly home, godly parents, godly heritage, godly instruction, I don't know that Josiah would have became the 20-year-old, you know, zealous, righteous king that he was. It's all connected. I mean, you think about Timothy. Timothy is one of the only trusted companions of the Apostle uh, uh, Paul. And Timothy, uh, or the Apostle Paul, you know, uh, uh, relates that Timothy was brought up spiritually by his mother and his grandmother. And those were seminal years for him. And they imparted to him what the Apostle Paul called a sincere faith. So I think that we need to begin by challenging our children. We need to begin by recognizing that it's not good for us to underestimate them. I think we should stretch them. 
We should stretch their vocabulary. We should stretch their knowledge. We should stretch, we should stretch their ability to have self-control. We should stretch their reading skills. We should, we should really provoke them to growth and not just to having fun, right? I mean, I don't think you and I are really conscientious of this. We almost have to step outside of our culture for a second and look back inside to realize how much of our culture is obsessed with presenting children with one thing above all things, namely fun. Everything is about having fun. So are you saying, Pastor Amelia, are you saying we can be walking around in our homes like a bunch of Stoics, right? And we don't laugh or we don't joke around or horseplay. No, I'm not saying that at all. Matter of fact, I've said this numerous times. Jonathan Edwards, who I remember reading his biography, and I told you before, but I was struck because I didn't grow up like this, but I was struck to learn that Jonathan Edwards, father of 11, when he walked into a room, immediately the children put down their toys and stood up because their dad was in the room. That's it. Just because dad walked in, the, the level of reverence. And yet, the Edwards household was known in the community as the house of laughter. Because they, it's not they weren't having fun. It's I think they had balance. A balance between reverence and joy. Therefore, I think we should do the same with our children. I think we should, we should stretch them. We should, we should really challenge their ability to do things that right now we don't think they're even capable of doing. Uh, my wife is way ahead of me on this, by the way. She tells me the stuff she's doing with Eden. I go, she can't do that yet. And she does it. And I'm like, I thought that she had to be like five or six before she was able to do that. No, she can do it. She's already doing it. She pray. She puts her hands like this. She bows her head. She's already doing that. What? She's not even a year old yet. And we started family devotions, and the first few times, we, you know, we started family devotions, like, oh, yeah, good luck, right? <laughs> she wasn't holding still. She wasn't having it. She was squirming, yelling, screaming, crying, everything. Now, family devotion starts. The first thing she does, she does is she grabs her Bible because she knows it's Bible time. And so I am, well, I'm telling you, Trish is like, she's a rock star, but I'm very blessed to have a wife that is that diligent because I expect that even a semblance of this, if this, if this gets into Eden's head, I expect that at five years old, five years old, I expect to have a fully uh, a, 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 a mature spiritual conversation with my daughter. And I expect her to be able to sit in Sunday school, sit in family devotions, sit in the church during a sermon, and listen. And I expect her to write down little words like justification. (laughs) Propitiation. (laughs) What is that? Question mark, right? Well, how else am I explaining that stuff to her? Write it down, and then we'll talk about it when we get home. Of course. This is what we do. And so I believe that overall, parents largely, even either consciously or subconsciously, they underestimate what their children are capable of doing. Don't do that. Don't do that. Believe God for big things regarding your children. Now, let me move on to the text, right? Because the priority, I want you to see that the priority here is on obedience. Children. So, once again, kids, if you're listening, this is what Paul says to you. Obey your parents in the Lord. 
And what I hope to show you as we go on and on with this is the beauty of obedience, right? He says, obey your parents in the Lord. And parents, here's the deal. This is not a suggestion. This is a commandment. This is an imperative. This is not optional for us. Obedience is absolutely necessary. And so we need to, again, not go in the, in, in, you know, along with the flow of culture that allows kids to just get away with murder. We, we, we are called to, above everything, look and analyze our homes and ask the question, when I look at my child, is there obedience happening? Or is it a constant fight, a constant argument, a constant negotiating sort of situation? Or is there first-time obedience? I believe that that's what we should strive for as parents, is we should strive for first-time obedience. When mom and dad says, stop, put that down, we have to go, that doesn't mean 20 minutes later, maybe I'll think about it. Or I'm going to chase you around the house until that happens right? We have to start, and that's where discipline on the side of the parent really comes in. Are we going to be disciplined enough to really enforce that level of obedience into our children? I think if we want them to be blessed, we will. We will. See, the Apostle Paul, who of course as a Jewish scholar, he quotes the law here, and he understands how serious the issue of obedience was in the law. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18 to 29, when you had an incorrigible child who did not obey mother and, 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 uh, mother and father and, were shame, and brought shame to their parents and was completely incorrigible, meaning they were totally rebellious, and rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, then guess what? The law was severe to the utmost. It leveled the death penalty against a child that got that incorrigible, that even when brought to people in the community to say, look, bring them to the pastor, bring them to the temple, bring them to somebody, bring them to the priest, bring people around that child to try to get them to conform and be obedient, and they cast off restraint I'm sorry, but the law says that child should be put to death. Now, of course, we don't live in that covenantal economy. No such civil law should, like that should ever be sought now. But here's the reality. The standard is the same. The righteousness is the same. The holiness is the same. What did Jesus say? You've heard it said of all, you shall not commit murder, but I tell you that if you've even looked with anger, or if you've even had anger in your heart, you have committed murder already in your heart. So in other words, the, the, the issue is so systemic that it's a heart issue, and the rebellion is of the same quality. It doesn't matter that the consequences differ. Therefore, Paul calls for absolute obedience. No, your, parent, your children will never render perfect obedience, but there needs to be a consistent pattern of obedience in your child's life, and that takes a lot of discipline on your part. We're going to talk more about that, Lord willing, next week, but he also gives us the motive, as we pointed out earlier. He gives us the motive of this obedience, and again, it's quite different than what the hyper-grace movement is trying to tell us. I Again, I almost fell out of my chair when I heard this really no doubt, godly sister teaching on parenting, and she says, do not tell your children to obey because it pleases God. 
And I immediately quoted the verse to Trish, and I thought, well, okay, and I'll quote it to you. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19, that's a parallel passage to Ephesians. Paul says there, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. <laughs> I don't know how else to, to minimize the impact of that command. It is well-pleasing. That's the motive. What's the motive? God's glory. It glorifies God to, to be obe- when children are obedient to your parents. By the way, by the way, even for your life and mine, when we come to try to explain anything in the Christian life, and when you take it up to the ultimate level, how much further can you go but the glory of God? Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatsoever you do, do everything to the glory of God. Because the glory of God is not a stepping stone to anything else. You see what I'm saying? It is the terminus point. It, 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 it's what answers all things. It's like a child asks you, where did God come from? Um, he just is. There's no other answer. That's the answer. He is eternal. He just is. I am that I am. He exists because he exists. And if, yeah, but why? That's it. End of the, that's the end of the study right there. Right? Some things can't go any further than that. Why do you do this? Why are you obedient? Why are you a godly parent? Why are you a godly child? Why are you an obedient child? Because it pleases God. Oh, I feel so good saying that because I can say that with biblical support. The righteousness was not just what was culturally acceptable for Paul. It's not just what other people are doing in the church that makes things right. It's not just a cultural mentality that we can develop in our little circles. It is what conforms to God's own righteousness, to his law, and ultimately to his glory. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul cites the law to prove the point? Honor your father and mother. Paul brings the Decalogue to bear on the domestic life of the church, and it was his way of catechizing the church, teaching the church, that they should learn from God's moral law and obey it as a community, children and all. So, again, the next time your children ask you, Mom, Dad, why do I have to do X, Y, and Z? It's not just an opportunity to cite the Ten Commandments. I understand that. But it is an opportunity to tell them because it glorifies God. And furthermore, it gives you an opportunity to preach the gospel to your children. Uh, Let me spend a few moments on this. When children want to know why it is the way that it is, why do I have to obey? Why do I have to stop playing? Why do I have to go to bed? Why do I have to listen? Why do I have to sit there? You can begin to teach them the nature of the law, the nature of the gospel, the nature of obedience and why we do these things. So, for example, teach them about the terrors of God's law. Show them that we are all under God's law as covenant creatures. We belong to Him. We have to obey Him. And therefore, show them that life is serious, that life has an element of, uh, that is sacred, and everything is not, again, just fun and 
games. Show them that according to God's law, they cannot break even one commandment. You so you think, you wonder where mom and dad insist that, we, that you be obedient? Let me read you what James says. If you break one command, you're guilty of breaking all the commands. That's how severe the law is. And I think that we should even press our children to see that if they think that they can obey the law perfectly, that they are under a curse to perform it. See what we're doing? We're just walking them through the gospel. We're showing them, like Acts 13 says, by the law you cannot be freed from the the curse of the law. Again, teach them the emptiness of self-righteousness. Teach them that they don't just that when they obey, they are not becoming more righteous in the sight of God. That their righteousness depends strictly on the righteousness of Christ. Show them that they, they, they don't have the answers to all of their problems. Because this world is going to throw problem after problem after problem at your child. They're going to encounter hardship after hardship after hardship. Don't we know that? And so what we're teaching our children is don't look within, look without. Don't look inside of yourself for the answers. Look outside of yourself. Do what Paul did. Uh, abandon self, as he says there in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Boy, that's a great verse for parenting. Not a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but the righteousness that comes by faith. The righteousness of God. That is what we need. They need to learn the valuable lesson that they cannot get themselves out of trouble. All of that. After we've presented to our children their spiritual poverty, we don't leave them there. We don't just show them the terror of the law. We don't just, we didn't, we don't just show them that disobedience leads to condemnation. We show them that in the light of all of that, we show them the fullness of Christ, the provision of Christ. We show them that Everything they need is found in Christ. Now, to illustrate that, um, Paul also gives us the promise of obedience. So look at that. He says, you know, Not only children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. See, what I want to talk about next is setting promises in front of your children so that it may go well with you. And that you may live long on the earth. I'll never forget. I was 20 20 years old, I think. I'd just gotten recently saved at 19. Um, A friend called me with the terrible news that my best friend since elementary school, Philip, had died. And that he'd gotten in a terrible car accident on the way home from Vegas celebrating his 21st birthday. He wanted to go to Vegas and party his brains out. Well, on driving home from Vegas... He and th- two other of my friends going 110 on the freeway flipped about a dozen times. The other two flew out. They ended up, bo- they both landed on the bob wire. You know, you ever been to Vegas? You got those bob wire fencings. They landed on the fence. Philip stayed inside, was crushed by the engine to death. And I remember being so broken and hurt over that because Philip, asked my mother, Philip was like my brother. Uh, his parents called me son. And I remember thinking in the shower as I was sitting there or standing there crying 
and 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 in just writhing in agony over hit the loss of him and this scripture came right to my mind honor your mother and your father so that it'll go well with you so that you may live long on the earth ever since i could remember philip was disrespectful towards his parents when we were in junior high i would break him and his father up from fist fighting he would curse at his parents completely incorrigible and disobedient and god to fulfill the proverbial element of this truth snuffed his life out (laughs) this is not a joke there are some universal principles to this truth that we really need to live beneath the fear of this so there's two levels of this of course if you know anything about this text right he says he says here that two things he says that it may, well, well, there's two ways that this truth applies, that it may go well with you, that you may live long on the earth. Well, there's, you know, ironically, we were studying in Sunday school, common grace. There's, on the common grace level, there is that universal truth that applies to everyone. Uh, whether you're saved or not saved, I think, I think it applies. And again, it is a general truth. It's not universal in the sense that it applies every single time in the same way to every single person. No, it's a general truth that if a person, if a child grows up predominantly being an obedient child, then they can expect the common grace blessing of a long life and that they will be blessed in the land. This was what was given to the children of Israel. And of course, the land there meant that they would have the blessed opportunity to have the privilege of living in the promised land. That was their blessing. But you know what? I think the universal application here, as I've already illustrated with my friend, but I think it's true. Think about how many children are growing up disobedient to their parents who will also grow up to be disobedient to their employers, to police officers, to the civil law, to the government, to people around them, and then later, the way that they will treat their own families. See, this perpetuates sort of a curse in their life. Folly, futility, stubbornness, hard-headedness, what the Proverbs calls a fool. Uh, If you are constantly giving yourself to a recalcitrant spirit, meaning that you are rebellious by nature, and that your nature is simply to rebel against the status quo, to be a contrarian for everything. The Bible says the rod is for the back of a fool, someone who just won't listen, who will not comply, who will not conform. And what the Apostle Paul, when he uses this scripture, what he's saying is that this reality is injected into our homes. And this, is, this truth is, is found in our children. Can I just unleash the wisdom of the Proverbs for us on this? Speaking about the rod, okay? And we're going to talk more about this, Lord willing, next week. But speaking about the, the use of corporeal punishment on a child, right? Spanking. I've said this before, and I agree 100% with John Piper. I will go to jail over my right to spank my child. That's how convicted I am about spanking. If the government said, you cannot spank your child, well, I'm going to keep obeying God rather than man. And if that means you come investigate me and this and that and the other thing, then oh well. Oh well. I mean, I trust God rather. I mean, what can you do? 
I mean, listen to what the Proverbs say. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 22.15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from them. Some of you parents in here need to learn the value of and, and, and the reality of what this proverb just said. Because I think that if you're not careful as parents, we can sort of approach our children with a gullibility and sort of give them more Uh, we can grant them more sort of grace, if you would, than they really, that, 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 that is really there. Because when it says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, what that's saying is that, you know, I mean, you know the truth, but your children are not by nature good. <laughs> by nature, children are bound up with foolishness, which means they will cross lines, they will break laws, they will disobey rules, they will dishonor you, they will... They will do things behind your back that are foolish. That's just their nature, right? And so if, we give your, if you give a kid the benefit of the doubt all the time, it's going to come back to bite you. In Proverbs 23, verse 13, it says, Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. Oh, they will try to convince you that they're dying. <laughs> right? They'll scream bloody murder like Child Protective Services is going to get called on you like they're dying. But they're not dying. They got a spanking, and what they're doing is protesting. What they're saying is, I don't want that spanking. They're, they're screaming and yelling more, not about the pain. They're screaming and yelling more because they got caught and they got busted, and now it's, you know, judgment day. And they don't want to face the music, period. They're angry more than anything. So don't Don't uh, shrink back. A lot of parents, they sort of back off because they feel like, well, okay, all right, I won't give you a spanking. Every time you do that, you're depositing money into the wrong bank. And what you will withdraw, you may not like. And so it's better to walk by the, wisdom, the light of the wisdom of the Proverbs. I'll give you one more, and this is the, this is the one that stings the most. Proverbs 13.24 He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. If you really love your child, it's hard work to keep disciplining, keep disciplining, keep disciplining. It hurts you. You get depressed about it. You get frustrated. You lose your temper. You get fed up. You get tired of it, right? And yet, if you truly, truly love your child, you will not relinquish this duty of yours to be diligent in your discipline of that child. Don't withhold the rod because it will show that you actually hate your child. Many of you know I work with dogs. And sometimes affection is the tool that is used to destroy the dog. Um, give you a real simple illustration of this. I deal with sometimes aggressive little chihuahuas. They weigh about three pounds, but somehow they manage to control the whole house. And what they do is they'll hold little chihuahua here, and he's barking, and he's trying to rip my hand off. And the person is going, it's okay, mommy's here. 
Is that the time to be petting your child when the child... Okay, give that chihuahua a 90-pound pit bull's body. Uh, you're not going to be petting that dog and say, hey, it's okay, mommy's here. You go ahead and keep trying to rip his head off. It's okay. No. You can ruin a child with too much affection. When the child thinks life is like this, that I can just be as rambunctious and crazy and disobedient and, 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 and disobey mom and dad and not listen to when they tell me what to do. And guess what? My parents, man, they still give me affection. They buy me toys. They let me play. They let me get up at night. And, you know, go to bed, you know, five times. Go to bed, go to bed. Oh, I need a drink. No, I need, I need bathroom. No, I need to go. I just wanted to see who was here. I just, you know, are you guys praying? I just want to check. They know how to work the system. And if you let them get away with that too often, then they think this is the way life is. Life is like this. So I can be, you know, I can be a, a you know, conniver like Jacob. What, is, what does God call, call him? That worm, Jacob. He knows what is in, in him. And, 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 you know, the Proverbs know what is in our children. It's folly. It's foolishness. We have to be the parent. Hello? That's the, that's the sermon right there. You're the parent. The child is not the parent. And I'll leave you with this hope-filled word. And that is that if you know anything about the land, that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the land. Living long on the land was not just a theocratic promise for a Jewish person to live to the age of 80. It also had a redemptive component because the land was typological of the new heavens and the new earth so that if our children meet the commandment with saving faith, then the longevity that is promised to them is eternal life. Not just living to retirement. It's living on into heaven. Captured perfectly by Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. According to His promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When a child believes and trusts in the command and in the Word of God and in the Gospel by faith, just like you, an adult, that faith results not living long just in this world, but living long in the world to come. It becomes, in other words, the commandment can become the fertile soil of regeneration when it's met with saving faith. Brothers and sisters, whether you're a parent or not, and I should have started my message out today by just telling you that even if you don't have children, even if you're not a parent, you're single, these principles apply universally across the board, no matter what stage of life you're at. Maybe you're beyond children. Maybe your children have grown, grown up and they've moved out. And you look back at this, oh yeah, that was a lot of fun. But the reality is that what, God, what Scripture is calling us to is a certain level of, of a certain culture of life where we view the commands of God reverently. We seek to apply these things what my hope and my prayer for, for the children in here is, is that, is that parents, will, parents will not think that it's too late. Some of you parents, your children are way behind. They don't listen when you tell them. You've got to tell them ten times. When you go over to somebody's house, they're all over the place. You can't control them. 
it's embarrassing to you, and you think, oh no, I don't have any control at this point, so that must mean I'll never have any control. No, 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 no. Remember, remember to apply the gospel to your parenting. There is hope now. You can begin now to do this. You can really turn the tide and really take control, but it's going to take a lot of effort on your part. A good friend of mine told me, you know, the way it worked in his house, and he was raised in a godly Christian home, he says, you know, if we went over to somebody's house and we were disobedient, and our father told us one time to obey, and we disobeyed, our father would look at, look at his friends and say, I'm sorry, my children are not obeying tonight. I need to go home and take care of them. Where's that reverence today? Where's that standard of holiness and righteousness? And where's that stang, st- standard of what the Apostle Paul calls being dignified? We've lost some of that, haven't we? Let's pray. Father, I genuinely desire for every one of us, especially me, to raise children in the light of your countenance, to raise and discipline our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord because it glorifies you, to raise them as they were yours because that's the reality is that we are just stewards And these little souls that are in front of us, they don't leave us. They go home with us. They are are our 24-7 congregation. They come home with us. We're always on. We can leave the congregation here and go home and go back to our lives and get comfortable. The reality is, if our kids came home with us, we're still on. We still need to be examples. We still need to be spiritual leaders in our home. And so, God, we pray for the grace of that we're going to need to shepherd our children rightly. And so, Father, would you please strengthen the moms and the dads here. Pray just a special prayer right now for all the mothers. They have so much to deal with, so much to handle, so much to juggle. They're under tremendous pressure at times. The stress at times can get so overwhelming and frustrating and discouraging. Would you please encourage them and strengthen them by your grace? May they set their eyes upon you fresh. May they have their strength renewed. And I pray for all the fathers in here that you would give us a sense of calling, a true spiritual vocation that being a husband and being a father is serious business. And that perhaps some of us are being held back because we're not taking our calling as a father serious enough. And therefore, we can't fulfill the ministry ambitions that we might have. Father, you know all things. And so we simply lay our hearts before you. We ask, please come, examine us. Test us, God. See if there be any wicked way in us. See if there be any sinful abdication on our part. See if there be any uh, wicked and sinful neglect of our children and cause us to repent and cause us to walk in newness of life knowing that there's no condemnation for us, that you're not here to condemn us, that your, your word for, for obedient children and for godly parents is not here to push us down, but to bring us up, to lift us up, to walk in, in righteousness and in newness of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.